0: Welcome to today's episode of Ownership Matters, a podcast for homeowners and resident-owned communities, brought to you by Rock USA. I'm Mike Bullard.
1: And I'm Paul Bradley. And we're here to share our conversations with community leaders, cooperative housing advocates, and leaders from across the manufactured housing industry.
0: We've got a great guest for you today. Rana Faruhar, an international business journalist, joins us to talk about the two articles she wrote on manufactured housing for the Financial Times in 2019 and 2020. I
1: recall it like it was yesterday. Rana called us out of the blue in 2019 and wanted to visit a few resident-owned communities for her articles. We were happy to send her out.
0: Rana Faruhar is global business columnist and an associate editor at the Financial Times. She's also CNN's global economic analyst and the author of two books: "Makers and Takers: The Rise of Finance and the Fall of American Business" about why the capital markets no longer support business, and "Don't Be Evil." How Big Tech Betrayed Its Founding Principles and All of Us, which is the Porchlight Business Book of the Year for 2019. Prior to joining the FT and CNN, Rana spent six years at Time as an assistant managing editor and economic columnist. She previously spent 13 years at Newsweek as an economic and foreign affairs editor and a foreign correspondent covering Europe and the Middle East. In May of 2019, Rana wrote a piece for the Financial Times about private equity firms interested in the manufactured housing space. She followed that up in February 2020 with a second article that specifically discussed the merits of resident ownership, including a deep dive into Clackamas River Community Cooperative in Clackamas, Oregon.
1: Great, Rana. Let's jump right in here. So thank you so much for uh, joining us uh, for today's episode of Ownership Matters. Uh, Really appreciate it. Obviously, you're a uh, highly respected international journalist and an author with a focus on uh, economics and business private markets and so i'd like to just start off with a little bit of background from you how does one become an international business journalist <laughs> what's what's your story rana
2: what's my story yeah well in my case i i first was a failed pre-med student i always like to tell the story because honestly i think Failure can be a great teacher. And I started school, I, I was at Barnard College, Columbia University, and um, I was a pre med student. I went in as a pre med student, and frankly, I did it because I thought, you know, since I was six years old, it sounded good to parents. So, you know, uh, that was kind of the main thing. Well, I got a C in bio, an F in organic chemistry, and it was time to get a new career. <laughs> so- <laughs> I was not, I was, I actually did not have a great science base. I had gone to a pretty, pretty poor state school in a rural area in Indiana. And um, I always read a lot on my own. And so humanities were a little, little easier for me. So I I shifted over and became um, an English major. And I ended up graduating, needing a job, finding a job at a magazine, and becoming just really enamored of the, the culture of journalism, the, the ability to be curious about new things every day, the ability to meet fascinating people and hear their stories and get to tell their stories. And that's how it worked for me.
0: You wrote that your book, Don't Be Evil, got it start from a crazy cell phone bill full of a bunch of small fees that your son mistakenly racked up in some in-app charges, which was really fascinating to see how you, how you got the genesis there. So what inspired you to write two pieces about manufactured housing for the Financial Times? And what were your editors telling you was of interest to them?
2: Yeah. So let me let me first take the... the I'll take the first part of your, your question about my my second book, Don't Be Evil. So yeah, my you know you find as a journalist sometimes the best leads come to you at a dinner table or you know on the soccer field um you know with your family and i had noticed that my son was spending a lot of time on his phone and then i began to see these kind of funny charges coming up on my credit card bill and I opened up this bill one day, and, you know, it was a lot bigger than I thought it was going to be, and there were all these sort of dollar ninety nine, dollars charges, and I started tallying them all up, and it was, I forget, I mean, you might have the figure to mind, but it was several hundred dollars worth of charges, and I thought, oh, my gosh, I've been hacked, and then I thought, wait a minute, who else has my password? Ah, my son Alex. Well, it turned out he had gotten addicted to various games, cell phone games that have, you know, lures, predatory lures, um, algorithmic lures to keep kids watching uh, and to keep them playing and to keep them spending money that actually is real, although it doesn't seem real in the game. And funny enough, this actually connects in some ways to your question about manufactured housing and why I got interested in that because I'm always interested in how capitalism works and doesn't work, you know, and when there are, things in the system, in our market system that aren't fair, that aren't working, that aren't sustainable. And, you know, there are so many of them. And housing is an issue that I I had explored actually for my first book, Makers and Takers. I spent a lot of time Thinking about housing, you know, obviously as part of the financial crisis. I spent a a lot of time in the Inland Empire in California, which is one of the areas, it's about two hours off the coast, one of the areas where there was a big housing bubble, big run up in prices and then a major collapse. And just looking at what the devastation of housing and the kind of volatility and the inequality in that market can do to communities. You know, some of those communities Really never recovered from two thousand and eight. Um, in part because uh, the housing market was was so uh, maladapted, and so from there I got interested in manufactured housing. I got interested in predatory lending that was happening uh, in this sector. Um, there was a lot of buying and selling on the part of you know major hedge funds uh, of. Uh, manufactured housing communities um, it was it was interesting to me because I thought wait a minute we've just come out of this predatory housing bubble now you get these big hedge funds and private equity firms coming into communities buying up these uh, these properties which have kind of, you know, can have a consistent return on investment for them, um, flipping them, recreating these dynamics uh, in a population that's even more vulnerable, um, you know, often of renters, people who may not own their homes, um, moving into these communities. And I thought, wow, I've got to, I've got to explore this, because it seems like we've got a whole new bubble in an an area that's going to have even bigger repercussions.
1: And your editors open to you delving further into the housing crisis and, and into these communities specifically? Were they, what were they saying to you?
2: Well, yeah, definitely they were open to it. I mean, the Financial Times is where I work, is it's kind of a great publication because perhaps a little bit different than say the Wall Street Journal or you know some of the American business press. Um, in, in the US, it, the, the, the FT is owned, and it's a London-based publication, 150 years old. In the US, the business press tends to be quite right wing, I would say. And so it's it's sometimes difficult to do these sorts of more socially minded stories. But at the FT, definitely coming from more of a social democratic sort of political perspective, we have a lot of focus on doing that kind of, um, of work. We have a big Uh, Focus right now on thinking about how to reset capitalism, make it more sustainable. And from a purely kind of investor self-interested perspective, there was a lot of concern about where are the risks in the system right now? I mean, it's it's it, the, these investments that might seem to have very little risk actually might hide huge risk. If you look at this you know, population of vulnerable people who are in a cycle where they might default, you could have properties going under, you could have knock on effects within the community. I mean, this is something that's very interesting to the readership.
1: Excellent, Rana. Thank you. I want to return to uh, the two communities that you visited. You called out of the blue and were interested in taking your scratch pad to a couple of resident owned communities. And you visited members at Halifax Estates Cooperative in Halifax, Massachusetts, as well as the Clackamas River Community Co-op in Clackamas, Oregon. So with your pad in hand, what did you find when you visited those communities?
2: Well, it was such a big story in so many ways. I mean, one of the things I was very interested in is the mix of people in the communities. It was much more varied, particularly in Clackamas, much more varied than I had expected. So I always thought of manufactured housing as being something for, frankly, older people and poorer people. And what I found was certainly there were some retirees, and there were some people who were just kind of starting to get their leg on the on the housing ladder, but there were a lot of people that basically just decided they wanted a different way of life. They wanted to spend less money. They didn't want to be um, you know working as hard. They they wanted to have a community in which responsibilities, ownership, rights, and privileges were shared. And that's something that is. I think, really quite profound in a way that's happening in America right now. I mean, there's um, so much vulnerability, so many, and particularly in terms of housing, very, very bifurcated, right? I mean, you have baby boomers holding a tremendous amount of housing wealth. You have a lot of millennials that can't get on the ladder. You've got housing shortages in places where the jobs are. And this is one of the things that was quite interesting in Clackamas because obviously that area is very hot for jobs, but it's, there's huge housing inflation. Um, you know, and when you think about um, one of the reasons why wages, for example, have been um, so stagnant in the US, uh, in the last 20 years and why it's becoming harder and harder to to be middle class. It's because of inflation in areas like housing. You know, I mean, all the, the gains in wages are being eaten up mostly by housing to a lesser extent, education and healthcare. So anything that kind of is a solution to that problem is something that I really want to dig into.
1: Mm. And you visited uh, you were talking earlier about uh uh, hedge funds and buying up communities, and in Clackamas, uh, you visited some uh, uh, budding communities. Mm-hmm. What did you What did you find there?
2: Well, you know, in, in typical fashion, um, when people own, as they do in Clackamas, you know, as part of the cooperative, there's just a level of care, consideration, maintenance that is really, really different than your typical investment property. Um, you know, I, I have seen a lot of manufactured housing. Um, when it's when it's owned by investors, uh, the quality of upkeep on the property tends to really vary. I mean, sometimes it can be fine. Oftentimes it's pretty mediocre. Many times it's really, really poor. And so what i um what I witnessed uh, in the investor owned property, Near Clackamas was that there were all kinds of maintenance issues. Some of them had triggered, um, you know, multiple complaints on the part of residents. You had people that were actually felt that they, their safety was at risk. I mean, you know, I took pictures. There were huge potholes, and then you go literally—I don't even think it was a quarter of a mile away—and you see a property that is entirely different, in which this cooperative structure is allowing. Asset gains to be shared, and by the way, the the property value um uh, uh, had had gone up um and I looked in the 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 city logs had gone up quite a bit um more at the the cooperative owned property, so it was just really interesting to see how two properties literally in the same place could have entirely different economic trajectories.
0: Rana, the, the people you met. And who you talked about just a second ago about choosing to live in in a co op for for a whole host of reasons? Do you see that anywhere else in any other any other situations where it's comparable, or is, or is this unique? In other
2: in other housing paradigms, you mean? Yes, that's a really good question. Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and one of the things that's interesting to me is. You know, co-ops, cooperative apartment buildings are, are quite common in New York. They're not so common in the rest of the country. I didn't even know what they were, frankly, until I moved to New York. But that's essentially what a manufacturing what, a, what Sorry, what a manufactured housing cooperative is, it's a co-op. Mm-hmm. And in New York, co-ops, that's prestige housing, right? I mean, you know, you have to apply, you have to show your financials, you have to show that you're going to be an upstanding member of the, of the community. You know, you're sharing um, tax costs, heating costs, things like that. It's creating a kind of resiliency for this, in this case, um, you know, one apartment building. But it's the exact same paradigm in the manufactured housing community and it's sort of interesting that there's still I think a great deal of prejudice in terms of thinking about you know mobile homes that's kind of a you know people will refer to um, mobile housing in a way that's kind of less than derogatory but actually I mean I was fascinated just by some of the nascent discussions that I was hearing about um, how these community owners in these manufactured housing properties were coming together and, you know, to develop shared childcare or shared elder care, or, you know, potentially coming together to investigate things like, could they come, could they um, uh, be part of a sort of a cooperative or a collective for, for healthcare um, in the way that say you would, if you were part of a freelancers union or, or a company that, that buys healthcare. Right. Um, so that kind of sense of, Shared risk and ownership is, I think, uh, really a model that I expect is going to gain steam in this country.
0: I think uh, one of the stigmas that, that the members of these co-ops face, particularly when it comes to the time uh, of purchase right at the outset, is, well, there's no way these people can manage this multi-million-dollar business. They have no experience doing that. And, you know, what we find and what the members themselves find is we sure can, you know, there's all sorts of talent out there. And so they, you know, you have the the board and they take care of things and they make the rules and they vote on rules and the budgeting and all that. Did you get a feel for any of that? Oh, yeah. Well,
2: I mean, if you want something done hire a senior with a lot of time on their hands. You know, I mean some <laughs> of these people you know, you're talking about retired professionals, teachers, nurses, engineers, you know, people, these are um, you know, well educated, thoughtful, intelligent people who Many of them, uh, certainly at Halifax, being a little bit older, I was really impressed that they had time to really sit down and dig into paperwork and train themselves and, uh, you know, get the resources that they needed. That was uh, very obvious to me. I didn't have any sense Uh, that there was a, you know, a lack of ability of anyone to manage this. I think that there was, um, at Clackamas, I know I spoke to a few people that felt like, gosh, in the beginning, wow, this is big money. This is sort of a big, big deal. We're talking about millions of dollars here that we're going to have to, you know, come together. We're going to be part of doing this, this deal to underwrite this property. And that's kind of daunting to people. But at the end of the day, it's the same as getting a you know your basic mortgage on a house. You just you know it's it's about shared um, shared risk pooling, and um, you know you read the paperwork and it's fine.
1: So Rada, the uh, the title of your article was "Why Big Investors Are Buying Up American Trailer Parks." I'm really curious. What sort of feedback did you get? What kind of reaction did you get from this article? Anything? Uh, any stories that particularly surprised you or comments from colleagues or what have you?
2: Yeah, you know, I actually got very positive feedback at the FT. In fact, our news editor at the time put some news reporters on on the the case, on, on looking at the housing holdings, single family, multifamily, um, manufactured housing of the private equity firms, because there was a sense that, wait a minute, there's still... A lot of risk out there in the system that we're not aware of. I did get some pushback from Blackstone, which was one of the um, private equity firms that we we looked at. I got a little, got a little pushback from them. They um, wanted me to know that this is a very small portion of their overall portfolio, and uh, uh, so on and so forth. But yeah, it was uh, it, it was a very popular piece, and um, you know, I eventually went out and did the longer feature, and the readers the readers were extremely interested.
1: Rana, I am dying to ask you if, you know, you've done a deep look at resident-owned communities here in the U.S. and uh, visited these communities, heard from the inside out how this operates. I'm really curious, you know, you're someone who travels the globe and looks at economics and business around the world. Do you see this kind of Community-led effort where, in this case, homeowners volunteers are coming together to build to buy a community asset and manage a community asset for the benefit of the larger group. You mentioned, uh, you know, platform co-ops earlier, I think. But uh, are you seeing this in other places uh, that would be interesting for co-op members here to say, "Oh, wow, that's cool. That's happening there too."
2: It's definitely happening. I mean, there's there's so many levels to that question. Um, I'll start with, with the most obvious, which is just the co-op model of ownership in general has been popular, not so much in the U.S., definitely in Europe in terms of a corporate structure. So, you know, it, thinking just even beyond housing, companies are typically owned by shareholders, right? But you can also have a cooperative ownership. So, for example, you think of a company like um, Ocean Spray. For example, that's a that's basically a cooperative of a bunch of small cranberry farmers. Some of them are bigger, but a lot, you know, there are thousands of, of members of that cooperative. That allows a kind of a wealth sharing that typically can't happen in the sort of capital structures that we have in the market right now. Part of that is, you know, s- similar to the ways in which resident owner housing can be difficult to to nail down, land ownership can be difficult to nail down. It's been difficult to start cooperative companies in America. I think that's going to change. I mean, if you just look at the Biden administration and the, the new um, appointees, Janet Yellen in particular, I mean, she's a labor economist. You've got a number of people within the administration that really, I think at a profound level, realize We need an entirely different model here. You know, we have um, a a tiny percentage of the population owning the vast majority of assets, and we just have to make it easier for people not just to have income inequality, but to have wealth. You know, Um, it's it's really about, you know, we hear a lot about, say, universal basic income. We need kind of universal basic capital. We need we need people to be able to share ownership, share wealth. And um, I do see that happening globally, certainly, but definitely in the U.S.
1: Oh, That's wonderful. Do you have any, uh, and you don't have to put a name to it, but any personal stories from your visit in the co-ops? You know, someone who was just doing something like, wow, that's really cool, or that's really unique. Uh, Do you recall any?
2: Oh, gosh. I mean, so many. I was really struck. I mean, one of the things I was just in a Broadway struck by was the care that people were giving to each other as neighbors. You know, coming and checking on people. You know, the shared... Shared tasks, just you know, the community yard work, doing this stuff together—that's a big deal. You know, that's like a block association or, or you know, any any kind of a, a community that comes together. But there were there were all sorts of individuals doing fascinating things. I mean, in Clackamas, one of the things that was so cool is that you had. This property right on the creek and the riverbed there, and there was a lot of land that was being developed by the co-op and that they were working with uh, local, the the sort of state naturalists and and making sure that the the riverbeds were being maintained, that you weren't having erosion, that the kind of, you know, land conservation was sustainable. And that was really actually in sharp contrast to the neighboring investor-owned property where you had just terrible problems. I actually saw one of the the houses there that I visited was literally the backyard was starting to fall into the creek because it was not being properly maintained. And, um, you know, there wasn't that kind of tight interaction between, all right, we're going to make this property beautiful for ourselves and for the cooperative, but we're also going to Invest time and energy and work with the city and state. And, you know, you you just, a a far away investor owner is not going to put in that kind of
0: time. So, Rana, what's next for you?
2: Oh, gosh. Well, I am working on my third book. And it's essentially about the reset that's going on, I think, in our in our political economy right now. Um, To put it in very broad brush terms, I think we've had for 70 years, a pendulum that has swung too far towards uh, Wall Street away from Main Street. Um, You know, there's vast inequality, we've lost a lot of jobs, there's very little income growth. And I think the pendulum is now shifting into um, a really a, a, a new world. And I think that there you're going to see a lot more re of wealth in local communities. Um, so the book is called The Homecoming, and it's going to look at some of the new policies, new technologies, new economic ideas that are going to sort of, you know, be a part of this new world. So hopefully it'll be a hopeful book.
0: And when should we look for it?
2: It'll be out in fall 2022. So right in time for, for the midterm elections.
1: Wonderful, and if, and if the homecoming uh, needs a vignette of a resident-owned community, please look no further than uh, these inspiring communities because they're doing some incredible things out there, if you've, as you've just cited, so.
2: I may well take you up on that, so yes, thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you very much for joining us on Ownership Matters. Rana, be well.
0: Take care. Thanks so much. And there it is, our interview with Rana Faruhar.
1: Wow, that was really fun. I was really interested to hear her reflect on uh, what she saw and experienced. You know, that's what journalists are trained to do. Uh, I'm not surprised, but really she what she witnessed, you know, real engagement, connected communities, people working for the betterment of their community, that true sense of ownership that you experience when you visit a resident-owned community. The members of Clackamas River and Halifax Estates should both be proud. I sure am.
0: Yes. And it was great to hear that her articles in the Financial Times were so well-received and so popular. And I'm definitely looking forward to her new book.
1: Speaking of her articles, Mike, uh, we've linked those in the show notes of this episode. So be sure to check them out, everybody.
0: And if you've enjoyed our first few episodes, don't forget to tell your neighbors about it. Send us your thoughts on this episode by emailing ownershipmatters at rockusa.org. That's ownershipmatters at R-O-C-U-S-A dot org. Until next time. Thank you very much. Be well.